Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. This is a real favor. I'm lucky that almost 300 guests, but this is a really special guest. I've been following him and his father for many years. His father, Stephen Covey, was perhaps one of the first developmental books I, I read, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then I read Stephen M. R. Covey's um, book, uh, The Speed of Trust, which was very influential for me. And now his latest one. Those who are watching on YouTube can see Trust and Inspire by Stephen M. R. Covey, David Casperson, uh, McKinley Covey, his daughter, and Gary J. Uh, T. Judd. Um, it, it's a really great book. It felt like coming home. And and so when Stephen and his team uh, reached out, and we made a connection. Uh, there was just a natural connection. And David Casperson later on, his uh, colleague who they've worked with for 17 years uh, is also, we're going to do a podcast as well in the new year, but Stephen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. I feel like the pleasure is mine. <laughs> when I learned about you and this podcast, inspiring leadership, I said, you know what? That sounds very aligned with this trust and inspire idea and approach. And so I'm really delighted to be here with you and with other guests. Yeah, well, 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 thank you. And uh, we were talking about the fact that it, the book has taken six years to write, but yet the idea went back to 2005. And you were telling me how you and your father, Stephen Covey, he was talking about his eighth habit. You were talking about the speed of trust, which was just about to, to come out and and how you were gestating this idea. You, you sort of knew that, that something was a bit amiss in the way that leadership was going on. And there was a different way, a more helpful way, a more effective way, more human way, a more loving way to lead people than the way that we've all been brought up in the Taylor-esque machine bureaucracy kind of way. So do you want to tell us a bit about how, how you started to identify this idea that the, the, the old command and control, as you call it, which is quite a good way of describing it, really isn't working. People think it's working, but it's it's not. I'm reminded of a of a poster that um, the uh, one of the, the the political party in the UK said about the other party, and it, and it said Labour's not working, and, and, and it had this <laughs> long queue of people in the the queue to get uh, redundancy pay, and it was a clever one. But but command and control was not working, is not working, and and this is why this idea of trust and inspire came up. Do you want to just say a bit more about about that? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, again, as you mentioned, as I was doing these uh, sessions, these workshops with my, with my father, you know, we might have a thousand people in the room, and and he would always ask the question to the audience: How many of you believe that the vast majority of your workforce has more creativity, ingenuity, capacity, ability to contribute uh, to contribute? but that their current job 
doesn't require it or even allow it. And almost every hand would go up. And then he would ask a follow-on, and how many of you are under more pressure than ever before to accomplish more with less? And again, almost every hand would go up. And so, you know, the juxtaposition of that, we've got to do more with less, and yet people have more capacity inside of them than they can, than they're giving or even being allowed to give. What's wrong with this picture? That's a leadership opportunity and challenge. And so I began to think about the way that we're leading is not unleashing the potential, the greatness, the talent of our people. There's so much more in people. We've got to unleash it. We've got to find a better way to lead. And and, and I found that the best way to teach this was kind of by contrast. And so one way of contrasting it was to say, describe the kind of leadership that we've been stuck in. It's not working as well. I call that command and control. And then needing to come up with a name of the kind of leadership we need to move towards. And in contrast to command and control, trust and inspire. And it began to kind of crystallize in my mind of how we could do this and make this really practical for people. And 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 also convey the idea that we are not our style. This is a, the way we lead. It's a style. We are not our style. We can choose to re-script you know, we are not programs, we're programmers. So let's write a new program. Let's lead in a new way. But it's one thing to know what we need to move from. What really becomes important is to know what we need to move toward. Mm-hmm. And we have to name it and describe it. And so Trust and Inspire became that aspirational way of saying, this is the kind of leadership that is needed today so that we can see the greatness in people, communicate it to them so they come to see it, develop it, and then unleash it. And that's oh. what the idea behind Trust Inspire is all about. Well, it, it's so beautifully put, and, and it triggered for me many things. The, the first one is you you begin with that lovely story from Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, the late Sir Ken Robinson, uh, about this whole idea of, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll tell it very briefly if I, if I recount it well, that, that he said when, when, when my son was six in England, we moved to America. We live lived near Death Valley and it's called Death Valley for a reason because nothing grows in it and it has some of the hottest temperatures in the world. He said, but but in I think it was 2004 in the in the the fall of 2004, one day, six inches of rain fell. And then in the spring of the following year, the valley was carpeted in beautiful flowers for a day. Yep. Because underneath those dead rocks, it wasn't Death Valley was dormant valley. There were seeds of possibility. And I love that way that you added in that idea of the dormant valley. That And that in, in everybody that we're working with and that we meet, we make terrible sweeping judgments, first impressions. Oh, they're like this. They're like, you know, very... Because there's the they call it the heuristics of humans, that we're so busy, there's so much coming in, we quickly have to make shortcuts. And one right. of the shortcuts is we're massively judgmental. We've got to have good judgment, but let's not be judgmental. And I know it's my great undoing is to be judgmental. And even at the age of 62, I'm still making sweeping judgments. I go, whoa, where did that one come from? You know, really challenge that judgment. And so I, I love that whole idea, the, the seeds of possibility. The other thing in, in everything you said was so very interesting to me. As a man who, who spent, uh, I've been 22 years in business, but 20 years before that in military as an army officer, as an instructor at the Royal Military Academy, Santos, that 
Everybody thought the army is all command and control. It's referred to as command and control. It's a military thing. But actually, when I look at my airborne training and my special forces friends, nothing could be further from the truth. It's not at all command and control. You know, when I dropped off with a team of a private soldier, I was a major. There was a corporal and there was a second private soldier. We dropped off in a field. We were working against the IRA who might try and blow us up. And there was wires and things. If private soldiers said, booby trap wire, take cover. I didn't go, do you know who I am? I'm the major. I, <laughs> I, I make the decision. Boom, poof. You know, I would be dead. So like whoever you are, you can think for yourself. There is no monopoly on good ideas. And and if if I encourage him and I trust him and I say, okay, we'll take cover. What do you think we should do? And at the end of an operation, at the operation, I'd say to everybody, okay, what worked well? You begin private, private A and private B. And he'd go, this is what worked well. And, and what did you do that worked well? And he'd tell me. And then what would have made it even better? And he'd tell me. And then I, and I say, this is what worked well. But actually, guys, what could have made it better? If I hadn't got lost as I got off the helicopter, I went I went north, I should have gone south. And I apologize, that lost us half an hour. So that kind of conversation is anything other than command and control. It's much more trust and inspire. But there are moments when you have to make some key decisions and you don't say there's a fire what does everybody think? Should we have a discussion about whether should we leave the building or not? Right. You know, it's like, follow me. You know, there'll be moments when even in a trust and inspire, but they trust you to know that you're not going to lead them into the fire. You're going to lead them out of the fire. Right. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting that you, you caught on that command and control versus trust and inspire. Any, any thoughts that, oh, and the final one was, I love that way of making sure that style doesn't get in the way of the intent. And we used to talk about in the military commander's intent. This is what I want you to achieve. Yep. And this is the end state. And how you do it, as long as it's it's moral and legal, I don't mind how you do it. That's that's up to you. That the how, this is the this is the why. This is what we the end state we need. But the rest is up to you. What do you think you should do? Uh, any thoughts that come from that, Stephen? Yeah. I love it. Well, first of all, it's so frequent that style, our style can get in the way of our intent. I find that with many leaders where their intent is usually good, but oftentimes their style, how they go about doing it gets in the way of that intent and undermines mm. it. But most, most leaders have a desire to contribute, to make a difference and, you know, to care for their people. But oftentimes their style is getting in the way. So we're trying to say, don't let your style get in the way of your intent. Instead, adapt your style to be consistent, aligned with your intent, to see the potential, the greatness that's inside of people. It might be, it might be lying dormant. Um, you know, that's what that's one of the key takeaways of the Sir Kenneth Robinson story of Death Valley, is that just like the life and the power is in the seed, mm. the life and the power is in the people. Our job as leaders is more like a gardener than it is, say, a mechanic. A mechanic mm. fixes things and fixes people. A gardener creates conditions for the people to flourish, to grow, because the life and the power is in the people, just like it's in the seed. And, you know, we're gardeners creating conditions for people to grow. But it starts by seeing it and, and, and communicating it, developing it unleashing it. And so if that's your belief about people, if that's your intent, then let's make sure that our style is aligned with that to unleash the greatness that's inside of people. I'll give you a little quick 
fun anecdote of mm, where where my where my style would used used to get in the way of my intent as a parent, <laughs> you know, because I've I've got five children and and uh, love them all, and but as we were as they were younger in particular, you know, we'd go on a family vacation, and you know I I believe in my kids and I believe they got greatness inside of them, but you wouldn't know that to watch me at the airport <laughs> when suddenly I get all nervous because I know, you know, I've flown enough to know that these flights are going to leave with or without you. And, and so we go, we go to the airport and suddenly this nice dad turns into this, just yeah. this, this domineering command and control dad saying, no, 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 no. Stay right here. Stay right here at the gate. No, no, you're not going to go to the restaurant. You're not going to go shopping. You're going to be right here. And I'm just, directing people, instructing people, telling them, acting as if they had no capability of being responsible, taking initiative, coming back. And and uh, I get so nervous. But and- dad, I'm 31 years old. I know, because <laughs> stay here. <laughs> exactly. And so here we are going on vacation, but nobody's having fun because <laughs> I'm just so domineering and, and trying to command and control them oh, that it's kind of taking the joy right out of it. My style was getting in the way of my intent. And my kids came up with a name for it. They said, hey, everyone, dad's got airport face. <laughs> airport face meant I'm freaking out. I'm all just commanding them what to do, telling them, and no one's having fun, even though we're going on vacation. So that's just a fun little simple example. and and uh, But it can happen so often. And if we can align it, there's a power to it. It's so true there, Stephen. My wife calls it my company sergeant major face, uh, where <laughs> I, I go, right, we need to try and organize them all and try to control over it. Because it, it is literally things that we have little control over, we're trying to control it. And it makes us, it's not good for us anyway, it puts our blood pressure up, it makes us an- over anxious. Right. And, and this is where I find the sort of stoic philosophy of control the controllables what you have control over you is only your thoughts and your actions and this is why i love that idea of don't let your style get in the way of your intent make sure your style does match your intent and and i uh, found someone was teaching me this on a similar kind of concept this idea of actions versus intentions that we're humans are hypocritical i as a human might judge you stephen on your actions but never your intentions, because I haven't asked you what your intentions were. And and but I'll judge myself because I'm a very honorable man on my intentions, but never right. look at my actions and see there's a mismatch between them. So I think actions and style is a similar kind of concept. This that the the children learn our style, they learn what we're doing, not the fine words we're saying. And and so they're 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 watching you. I mean, Nancy Klein was someone I mentioned to you earlier when we were chatting about her book the, the promise that changed everything i won't interrupt you and and in it she she tells a lovely story of when she was a quaker teacher her headmaster said to her nancy remember that the children are learning you mm. are learning you and and this is where it comes back to your father and you were so key about the character ethic it, it, it's like who you are not what you do. And and I, I use one of your father or your terms with someone, there was a couple of people who were working for me as coaches and, and I asked them to leave because particularly the way they were treating 
people who they thought didn't have an influence over them. So they would suck up to the commanding, the 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 uh, CEO, and be all uh, sweetness and light. But the girl on reception, they treat her like dirt. Mm-hmm. And I say, who you are shouts so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. It's like this is not, this is not the way we are going to be with people. There's got to be a consistency. Well, you can be consistently bad, consistently good, but it, it's a consistency. So, I think all that you say really, really resonates. Let's let's go on and talk about the other thing, which is lovely in the book, is you talk about the three stewardships: modeling, trusting, and inspiring. Do you want to tell us about what this importance of this idea? Because it resonates for me. Because in our inspiring leadership model, we have legacy LQ, which is about stewardship. It's about leaving things better than you found them. This mm-hmm. seeds of possibility, looking for the good in others that you meet, because um, everybody has something to teach you if only you'd listen. So tell us about the the three stewardships that you mentioned in your book. Yes. Um, first of all, let me just say this about stewardship, um, because I believe that in a sense, leadership is stewardship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about, it's not about rights it's about responsibilities Mm. it's not about position it's about influence so you know suddenly if i come in as a leader now and say it's not like i'm the boss i'm in charge these are my rights it's rather i'm a steward i have these responsibilities that are implicit inherent in being a leader and so that's the idea it's Mm. a stewardship and another way of saying stewardship for me is it's a job with a trust that I've been given. I'm a steward. And these are three stewardships, three jobs with a trust I have as a leader, as I lead people. And, and that's a big, by the way, um, important distinction between command and control and trust and inspire. In command and control, you know, I manage people and things. In trust and inspire, I manage things, but I lead people. Just make that distinction, you know, yeah. being good at managing things is important. We need good management. We need great management of things, of systems, of structures, of inventory, of the business, of the numbers. We manage things, but we lead people. But sometimes mm. we get so good at managing things that we start to manage people as if they were things. Very, very and when true. we do that, we become ineffective. We, we lose our effectiveness because people don't want to be managed. People want to be led. They want to be trusted. They want to be inspired. So that's the idea of what stewardship is mm. on those three stewardships. So maybe before I go into the three stewardships, let me pause on that point. No, I, I was just going to, and after you've talked about each of the three, it would be quite interesting. But but I just wanted to draw people's attention, uh, those who can see it, uh, at the appendix at the back of the book, those listening, page 305. It's lovely how you compare command and control to trust and inspire with, you know, command and control is compliance, trust and inspire is commitment, command and control is transactional, trust and inspire transformational. And and it, it deliberately breaks it down and goes into the different chapters and, and where it's different. And it, it is very helpful seeing that difference. You go, I, I don't want to be like that. I want to be, but I am being like that. I'm being my... Right. My my airport face or my company sergeant major face that that is command and control. That's not trust and inspire. But um, yeah, t- tell me about modeling. You know who you are. Firstly, that, that's a, a, a it's a very important area. Yeah. So first stewardship, first job with the trust modeling. This is who we are. And and uh, you know to your point, who we are is even more important than what we do. And so this is your your credibility, your character. 
your competence. In a sense, it's your moral authority. It's who we are as, as people and as leaders. And, and so the idea here is that as a leader, you go first. Someone needs to go first. Leaders go first. So what does a trust-inspired leader model? They model the things that they would like to see. If they want to see more openness and more transparency, they model openness and transparency. They want to see and experience more empathy and understanding, then they're the first to model empathy and understanding. If they want to see and experience more trust, they're the first to give that trust. Leaders go first. Someone needs to go first. That's what leaders do. They also model the values that they have. And if there's a, if they're part of a team or a company and there's company values, they model those values. They go first in modeling. And so the idea behind modeling is we're all modeling. The real question is, what are we modeling? Are we modeling the things that we would like to see? Are we modeling the behaviors that we would like to see manifest and to have? Are we modeling the values that we have? Are we going first in modeling? Leaders go first. So that's the idea behind modeling. And then I, I also highlight in that some kind of combinations of, of uh, behavioral virtues that are really important to model today. That each virtue by itself is independently valuable, but in combination, disproportionately valuable, exponentially more valuable. Humility and courage. Mm. And each by itself is vital, but in combination takes you to a whole nother level. Authenticity and vulnerability, empathy and performance. Those three pairings are powerful that have a disproportionate value today in our world where we want things that are real, authentic. And we respond to people who are appropriately vulnerable because they're real. I can relate to them. I can follow the, uh, such a leader. So that's the idea, modeling. We so, go stay, first. Staying stay with that one, it, it, the, there's so much to unpack in that. So much. That, that is very practical, very relevant. And, and I use from your book um, in a couple of my coaching sessions with the CEOs I worked with, this idea of encouraging them to, to have a genuine humility, but at the same time to have courage. Um, <coughs> people um, talk about creating a psychologically safe space, but there's almost an evolution into creating a courageous space where you'll, as I had a conversation I mentioned to you before earlier today with a, with a potential client who's now going to uh, wants to work with me. We had the most powerful, courageous conversation. He was challenging of me and some of the behaviors I'd shown. I've been quite strong with him and he he pushed back and the impact it had on him and i i apologized but equally was was more courageous with him about my vulnerabilities but at the same time about what i could do to help him and and we both said that was one of the most powerful conversations i've had for months with any leader and and i think when you can have that humility it's okay to be wrong and he even said this i always thought he was quite a strong person but he actually said not afraid to admit when I am wrong, personally, I'm wrong. And, and someone once said to me, lovely test for <clears throat> any leader, when was the last time personally you were dead wrong? Question one. When they say to you, 
Could have been 1972, but that <laughs> probably wasn't me. Uh, I can't really think of a time. Then you've got a problem. Second question, how quickly did you admit you're wrong? And the third question, uh, how did you make amends and correct things, yes. make things right with people? I don't know. Does that resonate for you? Completely. It, it's so, see, that's that's a real human being. And that's someone that's authentic and vulnerable. They're not trying to put on airs or pretend to be something. That's humility. And, and um, you know, so humility is such a vital virtue. It's foundational for everything else because humility basically says there are principles that govern. I'm not in charge. Principles are. Principles govern. And I am humble to that reality. And, and that includes then having the, the, the humility to say I'm wrong and to learn from that. And to try to make amends from it. And, you know, so humility is vital. But at the same time, courage is equally vital. Hmm. And and um, because we, we, you know, humble, humility is a great thing. But do we also have the strength to stand up for what is right and, and, to, and to voice it? And, and rather than saying that that's just, that humility that does that, that's courage. And it's that combination of humility with courage that is that is powerful. I know some people who are humble, but who lack courage. Yes. And, and this I, is, know, go ahead. I know people the other way too. Some people that are very courageous, but they lack humility. And they come across as a bull in a china shop sometime. Mm. Sometimes, you know, just running people over. Yeah. This combination is what's powerful. I love that. I love the pairing. It just worked so well for me. And then the other pairing, this idea of vulnerability with authenticity, it's a really interesting one. I've been for some time championing that, that only the strong can be vulnerable. And it's a great thing to be vulnerable. But then my military colleagues go, Jonathan, in the military, if we were vulnerable, the enemy would slaughter us. So, so there's this idea of martial strength. So taking it away from the military context into how we are as humans with each other and being genuine, but at the same time, appropriately vulnerable. It's not no point throwing yourself on the supermarket for like a, a three-year-old child and sobbing and banging your heads on the floor. I can't cope anymore. That, that's, that's not the kind of vulnerability we're talking about. We're talking about admitting you're wrong, being open and being prepared to learn from people. Um, I don't know how, how you talk a bit more about that pairing of, authenticity yeah. and vulnerability very much like you're describing jonathan that the the authenticity is real it's genuine and in today's world people want want real because we have so much fake and so much that's artificial and counterfeit we want real so authentic is real that i am who i say i am and and you know there's an alignment between who I am in public, who I am in private. You know, I, I'm I'm authentic. Vulnerability is saying I let people see into what's real. So I love the word intimacy, but spell it into me see. Oh, I N T O M E S E E. I let people see into me appropriately. So you you you're right. Um, there's needs to be boundaries. It's not just a Anything goes vulnerability because that won't inspire confidence to come in and say, you know what? I really 
am incompetent. I don't know what I'm doing and I should not be in this job. You know, that that's not going to inspire anything. There, there's boundaries. Um, I think it was Brene Brown that said vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. So there are appropriate boundaries. But the vulnerability we're talking about is that we don't have to come across as saying, I'm a perfect leader and I know everything. But rather, I'm learning. I'm improving. Yes, I make mistakes, but I correct them. And and I can learn from you and I need to learn from you. And I'm I'm a real human being. And and I and I and I can appropriately demonstrate that. I can appropriately let people see into me mm. as opposed to putting on a front of everything's perfect and I'm perfect. And that actually builds trust. Um, I was with Dr. Leslie Brown, or, or excuse me, Leslie John. Dr. Leslie John, Harvard Business School, expert on vulnerab vulnerability. And she said, she she uses a, um, a phrasing as a leader, do I reveal or do I conceal? Oh. And and her premise is, and her research shows that the leader that tries to conceal everything and try to present themselves as this perfect leader with no flaws and everything actually does not build trust nearly as fast as the leader that appropriately will reveal things that, you know what? Yeah, I made a mistake here and I was wrong there. And I, but I learned from this and I need your help in this area. They're, they're real, they're vulnerable appropriately. And when they can, then when they reveal that rather than have people say, Oh, that's a weak leader to your point earlier, Jonathan, that's a strong leader. This shows great strength to be appropriately vulnerable, great courage to be appropriately vulnerable. No, that's, that's so and it true. builds trust faster. It does. In a moment, I'm going to get you to tell the story of Green and Clean. Um, before I do, let's finish off the last pairing. Okay. Because um, I think I heard it right. Empathy and performance. Yes. Do you want to tell us more about how that works so well together? Yeah, that sounds like a paradoxical combination. Strange bedfellows, someone said to me. But here's why. Is that when, first of all, let me say this. For you as a leader, the, my, I learned this from my father, that it's a little bit habit five from the seven habits. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And the idea here is that the key to influence mm -hmm. is to first be influenced. Mm -hmm. And you're influenced when you understand another. So uh, for me to have greater influence with people if I can have understanding first, empathy, understanding, and they feel understood, they are, I have more now influence with them. I have more ability to succeed. So it'll actually help my performance go up. My performance will be higher when I lead with understanding and empathy. But also, as I help another person, when I understand them, their situation, their context, their strengths, their weaknesses, then I can help them perform better. Why? Because I move more into a coaching role, trying to coach and mentor and help as opposed to a, you know, a management role of, of just directing and instructing because I understand and, and I know what they are good at and what they need help on and what their context is. I can better coach them and help them perform better. So it's really an interesting combination how everyone wins and everyone performs better when we always start with empathy, with understanding. And, and um, it's really a 
a, a powerful combination. A, a brief story on this. I, when I first got in at Covey Leadership Center, um, I had, uh, we, we had these uh, disputes that had been in place from a shift in our business strategy years ago. I inherited this. And, and this is uh, when I was the CEO now. And we had seven lawsuits. And this bothered me. And I said, look, we, we gotta, we've got to come to agreement on these. And so I said, we're going to resolve these quickly because this is not, this hold, it's holding us back, but it's also draining energy and it's not aligned with who we are. And my key to this was, I'm going to go in and just seek to understand the other person. Why are they, what's, what's their concern? And, and we went in and I, I would spend sometimes an entire day only doing the first half of habit five, seeking first to understand. And I gained empathy and understanding to where they felt understood. Once they felt understood, we were able to come up with agreements and, 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 and resolve the situations. In every case, we had, we had total, there were actually a total of eight. We settled seven of them right away and, and within the next month. The other one took a little bit longer, but we settled that one as well. In other words, we got the performance of resolving this when we when people felt understood. The mm. empathy led to it. This is really practical. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely practical story about um, that combination between seek first to understand and then to be understood. You know, that lovely one, I can't understand my wife. She won't listen to me. Have you tried listening <laughs> to her? Um, and then that that idea that the performance comes when the other feels seen and heard for the first time. And, and it is a great skill to, to allow the other person to, seem f- to feel seen and heard and valued. I was reminiscing, and you might see over my shoulder, there's a picture of the queen and myself when she very kindly gave me my MBE and I only had 90 seconds with her. And, and I wasn't, I was at the bottom of the, the list of the, 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 the awards. There were people being knighted, being made dames and knights. But when I was there with her, she had no earpiece. She had no lackey whispering in her ear saying, this is Jonathan. And this is what Jonathan's done. And he was, you know, helping the Australians with the East Timor massacre, training up their headquarters and didn't say anything to that. But she knew. And that like I was one of 40 people getting an MBE. But she came forward, she shook my hand, she looked me in the eye, and she started to talk about what I'd done and just say, really well done. And how I and and I was like, for the first time, I, I know there's a little bit of star craze just seeing the Queen, that kind of stuff. But there was something special, just like there was when I met Diana, Princess of Wales. She was really interested, made eye contact, was interested in me just for the short period of time. And I think that's the skill in our empathy to genuinely be curious and genuinely be interested in the other person. And then we blossom, we flourish like a, a sea anemone. We just open up and we perform. I think it's a lovely pairing. Any thoughts? Yeah, beautiful. Love, and I love that story with the, your 90 seconds with the queen, how genuine and real it was and how you felt seen and heard mm-hmm. and in a sense understood. Yeah, for it's, the contributions it's... you are making. You know what I love, by the way, I'll just add this about the, the queen, you know, the, her, the, the idea that she said there, there is a model, which has been born by many of my ancestors, a noble model. I serve. Yeah. 
I serve. And so when I talked about leadership is stewardship, the idea is that you put service above self-interest. Yeah. Yeah. Service well, well, above self-interest. And her, that was her model. I yeah. serve. She, she embodied it. And as our commander in chief of the armed forces, um, it was from her downward that we were seeing her example. So when I was honored to be asked to go back as an instructor at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, our motto was serve to lead. Serve to lead. Serve yeah. to lead. That's the motto of the officer training, serve to lead. But what was interesting in my time, I went back and I thought I was really special. I, I had forgotten my humility. I, I'd been given outstanding reports. I'd arrived. I was at Top Gun School. Ta-da! Here I am. Jonathan's arrived. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Do you know who I am? And in my first year, I was only there for a year. Um, but in my first six months, I got an average report. And I went like, what? Yeah. But I, I'm outstanding. What do you mean I'm average? And and like, really? No, 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 no. Surely you mistake me with this is somebody else's report. You know, But they were right. I was in comparison to the other outstanding officers, the best of the best. I was average, but not only that, I, I was a bit lost as a leader. And this is when I had a sort of crisis of confidence, which is why we're having this conversation now, because I I thought I need to learn about being a good leader. So I started reading things like Seven Habits, but I also thought I need to know more about the man I never knew. My father, who was killed flying when I was three, he died in an aeroplane, saving the lives of two other people, the pilot who should have been test flying the plane, and the navigator who he got out. Now, I reached out to the Fleet Air Officer Association of the Royal Navy and said, anybody knew Commander Paul Perks, 1964, killed in Changi, flying as commanding officer of HMS Victorious. His son would love to know more about his father. Would you please write? I got letters from all over the world, about 30 of them within a month. Really? Deeply touching, hilarious stories, sad stories, all sorts of stories. And then I, I I wrote to those who were nearby Santos and invited them to come and have lunch. We're having lunch. And um, there's Bill, who was the co-pilot who lived. He said, your father, when the fire caught hold, because it was a fault in the engine, the, the turbine had broken off, a blade had broken off, cut through the fuel, caused a fire. Your father's last words were, I'm bringing it in. And he said, Bill, you've got to bang out. We will save you. So he Bill banged out. But then my father ejected and a bit like in Top Gun with Goose getting killed, it sent him into the tailpiece, misfired mm. and killed him. And he was washed up two days later. Bill yeah. said that word. And then another guy said, Jonathan, y- your father bought my ticket. I said, what do you mean? My father bought your ticket. He said, your father should be having lunch with you today. And I should be dead. And I said, how long have you been carrying that thought? Is it about 30 years? I said, look, for what it's worth, this is what leaders, good leaders do. I suppose I would have said inspiring leaders if I knew the term at the time. They they are prepared to sacrifice for those they lead. And, and as his son, I release you from any obligations that you hold, that that was your fault. He, he chose to test fly the airplane. It's just that your airplane had the fault that would have killed you, but it killed him. That was his choice. And then Bill, the, the wise old observer said, John, you have a choice. You can be a victim. Poor me. My dad died and all that went wrong in my life was because I haven't got a father. 
or you can make your father your inspiration. And he was an inspiring leader. Learn from his stories, and there's many of them, of the great things he did. And find other men and women who inspire you, like your mother. She was very, she is, she is a very inspiring lady, does lots of charitable work. Learn from them and pass those stories on, which is why here I am talking to Stephen M. R. Covey about inspiring leadership, because wow. of that moment in my life. Wow, well that that is beautiful and powerful. What a, what a legacy mm. that is that you're carrying forward from your father and his inspiring leadership and putting service above self-interest and how that legacy is now being carried forward with the work that you're doing to inspire leaders everywhere and unleash, helping them unleash the greatness in others everywhere and having an impact, a ripple effect that continues through generations now. Well, and that's why it's so lovely meeting you, because you've taken on the mantle from your father, uh, who, a bit like mine, I, I put him up on a pedestal. He probably yes. had feet of clay and had lots of things that he wasn't particularly good at. But I, um, listening to his recordings, uh, when he was sending messages back from Singapore to my mother, and, and in those days, very British uh, naval officer. Hello, Trisha. It's it's Paul here. <laughs> I'm having a wizard time out here in Singapore. It's such fun. And the, missing the young boys and send my love to Johnny. I hope he's OK. And is he being well behaved? You know, it's just this voice <laughs> from the past. It's a bit like a, a sort of episode from the, the royal family. But it was uh -huh. it was hilarious. But but just not sorry. I rather made it more about me. This is about our interaction. But. What was it like for you, you know, growing up a very large family that you were one of nine with a father who was, you know, a, a professor at a, 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 a school teaching lots of people about leadership, uh, had strong opinions and wrote lots of things. There must have been times when you thought, you know, how do I keep up with this? And then, of course, you were then presenting on the same stage as him. And now he's no longer alive. You're carrying on his mantle. Well, there must be some good times and also some moments of like for me, I'm not good enough. I'm not like my father, you know, but, but I am who I am. I'm not him. I'm me. What's it like for you, Stephen? Yeah. Um, yes, all of that. And, and, um, but more than, you know, the overwhelming feeling and belief is that what a, what a blessing, what a, what an opportunity to have had a, a my, a father who, both understood and taught these ideas, but more importantly, lived them and modeled them. And I experienced it firsthand, as did all of all of my siblings. You know, there's uh, we had a big family, and and I would like to say that the first place the seven habits were first taught was to us kids. We were the, mm -hmm. we, you know, we we saw it in we saw it in the home, and but maybe the maybe the kindest and most accurate tribute I can give for my father would be to say this, that as good as my father was in public, as an author, as a speaker, as a teacher, and he was very good, as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. As a husband to my mother, as a father to us kids, he was who you thought he was. He had real integrity. He modeled what he believed and what he taught and lived it. And he treated everyone with great respect. Sometimes 
someone can get on the stage and just dazzle an audience with this great presentation. Then they walk off stage and they're like a different person. Well, my father, he was good on stage, even great. And he was even better off stage. That's with how he treated everyone he came in contact with. So maybe the kindest and most accurate tribute I could give him is that as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. Yeah. And, and I experienced this. I was the beneficiary of this kind of modeling. I saw it as well as the teaching that he had and the insight that he had. It became almost like the, the software of my mind, how he saw the world and, and this way of thinking about leadership and about people and, and, and seeing the potential and the greatness inside of people, seeing people as whole people. And then the idea of really trying to, that our job as a leader is to try to, to see and communicate people's worth of potential so clearly that they could come to see it in themselves. I learned all this from my father. I saw it from my father. I experienced it from my father. So I had, I, I see it as a great blessing. And I do feel a sense of responsibility, of stewardship to try my best to carry it forward and to continue in this. And, and, and I, you know, I will say this, that um, along the way in my journey, early on up front, I was a little bit, um, a little bit intimidated to try to be a speaker or to write about this because um, my father wrote the seven habits of highly effective people. <laughs> and and uh, no matter what I was going to do, it wasn't going to measure up to that. And so I initially felt a little self-conscious and kind of went down the, the, the leadership path, the management path of saying, well, look, I'll just focus on, on running the business. And, you know, my father is a teacher and a writer and a thought leader. And I'll focus on, on, you know, being a business person running the business, building the business. And I did that for a while, for 15 years. And then when I really found my voice around what I wanted to say, which was all around trust mm. and, the, and the need for trust, the power of trust, and how we really were underestimating the power of trust by maybe a hundred fold. That suddenly, once I found my voice, the fear left. Mm. dissipated and I no longer worried about a comparison instead I just felt called to move this down this path and that's when I wrote the speed of trust and now trust and inspire and felt kind of a new sense of this and no longer worried about any you know I'll just be a poor man's version of my dad but rather just saying no this is my contribution now to build on a legacy I'm standing on the shoulders of a giant Hmm. Rather than shirk that, let me stand up and try to be worthy of it and do my best yes, and, and give my contribution, but recognize that this is a stewardship and a legacy that I have and, and I'm trying to carry it forward. Beautifully, beautifully said. And I, I think it's, there's two human traits. One is competitiveness and the other one is comparison. Uh, and they're not really terribly helpful to us. No. I, I know that when I am at my worst, I'm massively competitive. When I look back in my days, 20 years in the military, uh, I was a good army officer. Uh, I went to the army staff college. I came out in the top 10%, but I was 
very competitive when I was there. And indeed, what's been lovely uh, doing these sort of 300 guests so far is I've had a number of my peers from staff college who've gone on to become generals and had them back. And I said, you know what? At the time, I was very intense and very competitive. They they were kind and said, I didn't really notice it, but I think I, I, I know I was. I mean, it was a place of high competition because, of course, you had to be in the top 10% to get there. And then you come out, you know, and the jobs you get after that, whether you're going to become a general eventually or not. And and I wasn't destined to become a general. I, I was OK, but there were people who were better than me were being promoted quicker. But that competitiveness and the comparison to others eats away at you. And it's not a healthy trait. It, it's good to compete with yourself. And I, I go right. and train in the gym. I've got a a, a lovely guy, uh, Adam um, Northover, who trains me. He's a bodybuilder. He, he's a, he, he competes in these, these sort of lots of this and looking incredibly amazing. I, I'm not trying to become a bodybuilder at 62, but I just want to be fitter and stronger. And, and it's very motivational, but I'm probably competing against myself just to right. better myself since last time. If I could do one more rep, or, or just a little bit more weight or, or just do the exercise longer or as I as I go down before I come back up, you know, just small things to improve myself. It's a sort of lifelong improvement. But when I start judging a neighbor or myself against another speaker or another podcaster, I start to feel bad about myself. And this competitiveness and, and competing can be very eroding, very toxic. What's, what's your thoughts, Stephen, in your experience? Yeah. I completely agree. In in effect, we it's easy to fall into that trap of comparison and, and competing, and but it it's operating out of a scarcity yes. mentality, a scarcity mindset. And one of the fundamental beliefs of a trust and inspire leader is that there is enough for everyone. Yep. That's an abundance mentality, not a scarcity mentality. So if I buy that belief that there is enough for everyone. And my job as a leader is to elevate caring above competing. Yes. And to your point, yes, let's compete against ourselves. Let's compete against standards. Let's compete in the marketplace. But let's care and collaborate in the workplace with each other. Why? Because there's enough for everyone. But when when we have a, a scarcity mentality, then it's kind of like, hey, I've got to compare and compete because there's only so much. And if they're getting it, then I'm getting less. Well, let's expand the pie. Let's, let's think abundantly. There's yes. enough for everyone. We can all win. We can grow. Let's compete against standards. Let's compete against expectations. Let's compete against ourselves. But let's care and collaborate with each other in the workplace because there's enough for everyone. That idea is a big idea. See, I maintain this, that scarcity might be good economic theory, but scarcity is lousy leadership theory. Yeah. Because there's an abundance of everything that we're seeking in leadership, of respect, of empathy, of compassion, of caring, of love, of trust, of creativity, of innovation, of joy, of passion, of commitment. There's an abundance. We can create more. Yeah. So therefore... Let's put, let's elevate caring above competing. Love let's it. compete externally, collaborate internally. Beautifully put. Internally. Beautifully put. 
Now, look, we're almost at the end of our time and we're going to, in a minute, do the your top tip. But before we do that, I have really enjoyed your other, your earlier book, The Speed of Trust. And and being a dyslexia, I, I listen to audiobooks. I, I love, you have that sort of Hollywood husky voice, which is definitely worth, you're good. You can do my, you can do my audio, you know. Uh, you've got that lovely voice that, uh, unlike my friends who tease me and say, Jonathan, You've got a you've got a, a great face for radio, <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, the speed of trust and and I took away particularly to those who are quite economically driven the simple yeah. equation trust equals speed times cost. What your colleague David Casperson uh, said to me: Don't also forget that trust equals energy times joy. Yes, and and many people sort of forget that bit. They think of it in 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 terms of the the economics. But would you just talk about why both those equations are important and then we'll yes. do your top tip yes well the the first is the economic the quantitative the idea that trust is always impacting two outcomes always speed and cost and when trust goes down in any relationship when trust goes down on a team or between teams in a company in a culture with customers in the marketplace in any relationship in any environment, when the trust goes down, the speed will go down with it. Everything will take you longer to do. And the cost will go up. Everything will cost you more to do. A lot more. Our distrust is very expensive. Mm. It is a tax. It is a low trust tax. It is a wasted tax. And that's, you know, that's very real, that low trust tax. But thankfully, the converse is equally real. And when that trust goes up in the relationship, on the team, in the company, in the culture, with customers, in the marketplace, in any relationship, in any context, when the trust goes up, the speed goes up with it. We can do everything faster and the cost comes down. It costs us less. Yeah. Now that is a dividend, a high trust dividend. And Jonathan, is that real, that simple, that predictable, and it plays out everywhere. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust. Speed happens when people trust each other. So that's kind of the quantitative side. Mm. And that was a paradigm shift for many people that have always seen as trust being this soft, warm and fuzzy social virtue. You know, it's always a good thing, but no one, many did not see it as economic, as financial. And one of the contributions of the speed of trust was to make that case, a business case for trust. Yeah, this is great. not just a soft, warm and fuzzy. This is financial. It's economic. You can put a value on it, financial value on it, speed and cost. And it's, it's and the and the data, the research shows that there's like a three times performance multiplier to high trust. Wow, so that's powerful. And as powerful as that performance multiplier is for high trust, the quantitative side, speed and cost. I think the qualitative side is even bigger. And that's the idea that trust always impacts energy and joy. And when trust goes down in relationships, on teams and cultures, the energy goes down as does the joy. Put another way, low trust teams, low trust cultures, they are exhausting and no fun. They just drain life and energy out. And it's no fun to be part of a low trust team and culture. But the converse is equally true. And when that trust goes up in the relationships, on the team, in the culture, the energy 
in all its forms goes up with it. Creativity, innovation, commitment, engagement, passion, inspiration, as is the joy in all its forms, the happiness, the satisfaction, the fun. And the combination of energy and joy is well-being. Mm. So well-being goes up with trust. And so good. as great as the economic quantitative side is, greater speed, lower cost, that qualitative side of well-being, energy, joy is even greater. Wow. That's exciting. And that's powerful. And that's both the business and the leadership case for trust. And it's why I believe trust is an idea whose time has come. It certainly has. But a beautiful way to encapsulate it. I will always remember that. And I've we're scribbling lots of notes because um it's such a, a rich uh pair of books you've written, Speed of Trust and Trust and Inspire. Um you also do some wonderful courses. So if people want to go and do those, um, they ought to go to your is it the Franklin Covey website, is it? Yes. Or, or you can actually go to trustandinspire.com. Yeah. Okay. And they'll find on trustinspire.com the courses. And uh, I think David and I were talking about becoming as a guest on one of your courses. I'd love to come and uh, have it. Come, come and interact. And we're going to meet, you and I are going to meet on Monday. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, let's end. Uh, sadly, uh, our time has come to an end. We could have chatted for ages, but let's, let's end with your uh, introduction to who you are, to those who don't know you uh, for your two minute top tip, and then we'll wrap up. So over to you, Stephen. May, may I, may, before we do this ending, could I just close one loop? Yeah. I, you asked me for the three stewardships and I really only got through one. Let me just yeah. name the other two. Yeah, please do. The That'd three be great. stewardships, the three jobs with a trust modeling, which we went through in great depth. Second is trusting. This is how we lead that we lead by extending trust to people as opposed to trying to micromanage them. We're always trusting because the idea is that you could have two trustworthy people working together, both trustworthy, and yet there might be no trust between them, even though they're both trustworthy, if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. So in order for us to have trust, yes, we have to be trustworthy. We earn that. But we also have to be trusting. Mm. We give that. And I believe that is a stewardship we have as leaders to be trusting of our people in a smart way. I'm not saying blindly just trust them on anything and everything. No good judgment, but lead out by extending trust to others. Be trusting. So that's mm. a stewardship. And finally, the last stewardship is inspiring. Mm. We have a stewardship to inspire those about us by who we are, by how we lead, and by connecting with people through a sense of caring and belonging, and then connecting people to purpose and the meaning and the contribution. That will inspire. So modeling, trusting, inspiring. Those are our three stewardships as a leader. No, and I'm pleased you really closed that one off because, I mean, there's such rich material in your books that uh, it's almost like you need to take a chapter at a time and really, it's almost like one of those things, a bit like the, the Bible, you, you go and you analyze it and you talk it through and you hold, spend a whole time on a page or so. So, so that's what I love about it. There's huge amounts of research you've done and you, you acknowledge and you bring in from all the best sources that you can find, but it almost like encapsulates everything that I've been reading about over the years in a couple of books. So that's a great achievement to you and the team. Well done. Let's end with your top tip. So please introduce yourself and uh, give us your top tip. Hi everyone. I'm Stephen M. R. Covey, author of The Speed of Trust and Trust and Inspire. And my top tip for leadership is this, that 
inspiring others is a learnable skill. Everyone can inspire. See, too often we've equated inspiration with charisma, thinking, hey, the only way I can inspire is if I'm charismatic and that's just not me. You know what? They're different. I know some people who are charismatic, but who are not inspiring. I know others who no one would describe as charismatic, but who are extraordinarily inspiring because of who they are and how they lead. So they're not the same charisma and inspiration. They're different. Inspiring others is a learnable skill. Everyone can inspire. And I believe it is a stewardship, a responsibility that we have as leaders to inspire those about us. So how do we inspire? Well, first, we inspire when we model the behavior that we would like to see. When we go first, that will inspire others. Second, we inspire people when we trust them and give trust to them because it shows that we believe in them. And to be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. So when we model the behavior, we will inspire people. When we extend trust to people, we will inspire them. And finally, we will inspire others when we connect with them, connecting with people. How? Through a sense of caring, deep caring, genuine caring. We might call it love through a sense of belonging. That I'm part of this. I, my, part of my identity is I'm part of this team. That inspires me. So connect with people through a sense of caring and belonging and then connect people to purpose and to meaning and to contribution. That will inspire them too. So we can learn to inspire. It is a learnable skill and it is a stewardship we have as a leader. Fantastic. Well, what a lovely tip. And Stephen, an absolute honor to have you on the Inspire Leadership Podcast. Um, as I say, one of my favorite uh, conversations that I've had, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you when you're in London on Monday. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Jonathan. What an honor for me to be with you. And I love the work you're doing with Inspiring Leadership. This is tremendous. Thanks so much. It means a lot. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.